Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 185 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc. Go to Acoustic Disc's website right now, link in the description, and you can sign up for their email where they will send you a free treat of the week. That treat is a song from their incredible library. And while you're there, you can also pick up a bunch of incredible recordings, and you can listen to David Grisman's podcast, Acoustic Encounters with Danny Barnes. So, check all that out at Acoustic Disc. How is everybody doing? Happy Friday. If this is a Friday when you're listening, it's a Friday when I'm recording this intro. I hope everybody had a great week. I just got back from Michigan and uh, getting ready to, looks like, hopefully get back in the swing of gigs here. Got three this weekend. So I'm looking forward to uh, playing the Vertigo. Seems to have been at bay now for a while. Still have tinnitus. I mean, I've always had it, I guess, but it seems a little bit worse. But what are you going to do? back at it so it feels good to do it feels good to do these podcasts again and uh yeah again i just want to thank everybody who reached out and sent me notes of encouragement so i really appreciate it, it helped me heal quicker i'm I, I believe that so let's get into the advertisers here real quick before we get into this episode peghead nation with Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. Who you ask? How about Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning, and Ian Corey. That's right, from beginner to shoro to jazz to octave mandolin, it's got it all. Uh, I use it all the time. Again, even just watching the the uh, players perform the tunes that they're going to be teaching you how to play is incredible. And the best part, you guys, is you get the first month for free if you go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And oh boy... They have some really exciting stuff coming up. Uh, Stay tuned for that coming at the beginning of July. I'm really excited. I've seen some photos. I've talked to Adrian a few times now. It's going to be incredible. So stick around for that. Ear Trumpet Labs. Ear Trumpet Labs. Hand-built microphones from Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Also follow them on the Instagrams. Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Pava Mandolins out of Austin, Texas. And you know who carries Pava Mandolins? Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 50th year, going on their 51st. They're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide. You can visit them anytime at Elderly.com. And hey, what better way to play those instruments than with a great pick? And Tone Slabs has got you covered. Go to ToneSlabs.com now and get yourself a slab of tone. 
I've been using the 08, which is the uh, kind of the signature version of CJ Lewandowski, and I use it in the dark tone. But they've got all the shapes and sizes that you that you would want as a player. Head on over to Tone Slabs right now and check them out. David and Frank are doing an incredible job with some of these picks. So head over there. Tell them Mandolins of Beer sent you. All right, let's get into this episode with Brittany Hawes. What a great album her and her sister have out called Hawes, and uh, she's just an incredible player a new the newest member of the punch brothers as well saw that on the mandolin cafe and i knew this conversation was coming up it's cool to talk a little bit about that and all the other things as well it's a fantastic talk hope you dig it as always the songs that are sampled in the podcast are in the description below with links to where you can go get them it's pretty much always Bandcamp. so uh go ahead and click on those links if you like what you hear buy some music support your favorite artists let's get into this episode cheers everybody Well, man, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Brittany Haas. Brittany, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for doing it. We've been kind of playing like email tag for um, for a while here since the last Hawktail album when we kind of met up in Vermont at the uh, at the big um, Green Mountain Bluegrass and Roots Rock Festival there. That's right. Yeah. And that was an incredible thing. And and. It was really interesting to see you in so many different facets. You know, I've heard you on multiple different recordings and seen you in a few different projects, but to see the versatility live over the course of just a couple of days is really, really quite amazing. Thank you. That's very kind. I had a blast. It's it's always fun when that happens, you know, the the coinciding of different bands at the same event. Yeah, it's it's cool to see other people catch up too. That you know, like it's so rare, I think, for artists, especially artists of your caliber and the caliber of the acts that are there, to be in the same place at at any one time, let alone a few days, to see yeah. old friends catch up and 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 just the uh, instantaneous music that happens. Totally, yeah, it's definitely like a a family reunion kind of feeling. Well, we have we have a couple things to talk about. We we are initially doing this interview because you have an incredible new album out with your sister Haas nice. called that is just mind blowing. But in the meantime, uh, another big announcement has come out, and you are now a member of the Punch Brothers. Yes, I am. Congratulations! Thank you so much. And I think that plays to the versatility thing. I mean, I think a lot of people maybe um, maybe know you as one style of music. Um, because a lot of a lot of your work with the fiddle and like the old time stuff, but uh, you know, you the, your work that you did with Chris when he was doing the uh, the live from here was, I mean, just really again showed your versatility and all the different styles. So, man, how exciting! Yeah, I'm totally thrilled, and it's obviously such a great honor to get to join a band like that. And I'm such a fan of theirs and of their fiddle player specifically, Gabe Witcher. He's so wonderful. Um, so. It's going to be really fun learning his parts and then making new music together. Yeah. What, do you, have you guys, do you have a first gig booked yet? Um, my first gig with them will be at the acoustic camp that Chris Dealey is hosting in early August. 
Man, that's wild. Are you? Uh, yeah. Is, is it a lot of work? I mean, that's, uh, your bands. I mean, you know, your bands have that you play in are, have some pretty complex arrangements, kind of as it is. But is it kind of a uh, you know like a whole different sort of mindset you have to go into with that? It kind of feels that way. I guess that's because, like, in terms of the complexity of other music that I've played, I've been there for the process of writing it. So that, in a way, makes it easier to just sort of put all the pieces together in your mind. Whereas something like this, where you're you're learning something after it's been created fully and just concocted with all these little pieces, it's more of a part. Um, and I I personally sometimes struggle with memorization i think because as a folk musician that's not something that i have to do very often um you know like you'll you'll learn a melody or you'll you'll learn an arrangement of a tune or something like that but um something that's as specific as some of the punch brothers arrangements that's going to be a challenge for me and uh i'm looking forward to hopefully rising to it <laughs> now is that something when you sit down and I'd like to talk a little bit about this in a, in a bit here, but while we're kind of talking about this now, is that something you'll sit down and actually transcribe parts and write parts out for that? Or do you just sit down and listen to it and just start, just start putting it to memory? Probably a bit of both. Um, so yeah, more about my, my personal learning process, I guess is I, I do like, I, I do read music. So Reading, making and reading charts is a pretty efficient way for me to learn music, but it's not always the best way to actually memorize it or, you know, commit it to memory and into my fingers um, in a more permanent way. So since I won't be reading charts, you know, when I'm playing with them, um, I'll probably try not to write it down. So let's let's talk a little bit about your background. You grew up out west. That's right. Yeah. California Bay Area couple of your mentors. I mean, Daryl Anger was out there, right? At, at, at that time. Totally. Yeah. I was so lucky to meet him. And yeah, my other main mentors from that era, um, were Jack Tuttle, who was my first fiddle teacher, Molly Tuttle's dad. Um, he's amazing and taught me so many tunes and got me improvising and is just a really wonderful educator. And then I, met Bruce Malski via the Alistair Fraser fiddle camp. So I actually grew up playing a lot of Celtic music at those events. And uh, that's kind of featured on this album because that's what my sister does largely. Um, so Alistair's, I love his fiddle playing. He's a huge influence as well, even though I haven't played as much Celtic music lately, but it was at that camp where I met Bruce and I really fell in love with old time music. And through Bruce, I met Daryl, who, like you said, was living out there at the time. So I got to take lessons with him and he hired me pretty early on in, in one of his bands. Yeah, I love Daryl. What a beautiful human being and musician, obviously, but holy cow. <laughs> yes, <laughs> seriously. I know. He's such a great role model. What age did you start playing at? I was nearly five. I was doing Suzuki Method at that time. And then when I was eight, that's when I started taking from Jack. And so you started what, at, at what age then, like improvising? Because that's, I mean, that's a thing that it's a, like a lifelong quest. So beginning early, <laughs> that's a good, totally. a good way to start. Yeah. I know, I know. I'm so grateful that he, that was part of his teaching method um, was just like, okay, now, now don't play the melody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, which, yeah, I don't remember exactly how far into lessons that started happening, but I would say probably within like a year or something. Holy cow. And you were playing with um, Daryl's band at, you were what, 14 years old with a Republic yeah. of Strings. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then at 17, your first album. Yes. That's all because of Daryl. He was like, I think you should make an album. And he helped me through the whole process. He produced it and we recorded it in his old backyard studio in Oakland. Yeah. So I really credit him with, with that having happened. And I'm so grateful for that experience. The part of your bio that blew my mind here that I had no idea that you um, you continued to tour and record and you were earning a degree in evolutionary biology at Princeton. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> How did you find the time to do these things? <laughs> um, I had, I guess, well, I don't know. I think um, I was just excited about all of it, I guess. And that's kind of why I decided to keep studying academics is because I just really loved it. And I wasn't quite ready to make the decision to, you know, put everything in the music bag. Um. But then, you know, it kind of quickly became apparent that I wasn't, I also wasn't ready to not be doing music and these great opportunities were coming my way. So, um, yeah, I just sort of had to do it all. And, and I had really supportive people around me, um, you know, like when, when I joined Crooked Still, they were really wonderful about scheduling around what I really needed to be on campus for, um, so I'm yeah I'm I'm really glad that I had that experience. I've met a lot of wonderful people there. Um, like my musical mentor while I was at Princeton is a totally awesome guy that that really helped me in terms of like creative endeavors. He just like you know like he does all sorts of stuff. His name's Dan Truman. He plays Hardanger fiddle, which is like the Norwegian instrument with the sympathetic strings. Oh yeah yeah. Yeah, so he plays that, but he also does computer music and all kinds of wild new music stuff. Um, so that like opened my mind in, in new ways. And yeah, just, you know, I'm really lucky, basically. <laughs> and so how long did you stay out east? I mean, with Crooked Still, they're a Boston-based band. I, by the way, love all their recordings. out there let's see i moved to boston when i finished college so um, and then i moved to nashville in 2011 basically i also moved back to boston for a minute in there because at that point i was like pretty heavily on tour so it was almost like you don't really live anywhere <laughs> sure i actually didn't live anywhere for like one year where i was between nashville and in boston my stuff was in storage um but yeah so i've been in nashville for like 10 or so years now 
Was there a point ever, you know, when you're, you're getting this degree at Princeton for evolutionary biology, you're also minoring in music performance. So, I mean, music had never left, but was there ever a point where we would have been robbed of your music by you deciding, you know what, I think I'm going to take this job in evolutionary biology. <laughs> um, I think it was kind of clear to me and more and more so as I went along that because my heart was really straddling things at that time. Like whenever you don't put your whole self into something, you can kind of sense that you're not going to be as successful as at that thing, you know? So it was kind of like, I could see my peers in science, like succeeding in ways that I just wasn't because I wasn't putting in any extra effort. I was just like getting by basically. (laughs) Sure. So it was kind of like, it was an easy decision and, you know, the one that I wanted to make also. But when Cricket Still was like, do you want to join the band? I was like, yep. And then, and then when I graduated, I just went full time into that. It just kind of happened that way. And like, I'm really glad that I had the experience of going there. But but it all feels like it happened the way it was meant to. And I also got to see you. I um, I think this is what, you know, music, it's funny when you go see live music. It's so interesting. You know, everybody seems to have encores kind of plugged in to their set list. You know, you, you know that if you go see, you know, whatever, I don't want to name a bluegrassy band, but, you know, I'm sure if you want to see the Osborne Brothers at some point, you know, if they haven't played Rocky Top, they're going to come out and play Rocky Top. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, they're not going to not play it. But I saw you playing. It was... Um, the David Rawlings Machine Tour, I believe it was what it was, and it was with the Punch Brothers and Gillian Welch, obviously, is in the David Rawlings Machine. And you guys came out and I had like front row seats at the Charleston Music Hall, and you guys did your final song of the night, and then I could see you guys walk off the wings, and it was like just the, the loudest ovation I'd ever seen at that venue. I mean, people were just like, we are not going home. And I just saw David looking at Gil and he's like, he's like, we should go back out and do another somewhat. And she's like pointing at her watch. Like, I, I don't think we can. He just waves her hand, his hand at her kind of like, ah, let's go. And he just walked back <laughs> out. And it it might've been the first time I've ever seen a true encore in my entire life. It was amazing. Oh, cool. Yeah. They're, they're masters. Yeah. They, they really love performing and you can just feel that I think as an audience member, like that's such a huge part of what they do and like that interaction with the audience and how did you how did you link up with them yeah that happened through paul cohort the bass player in hocktail and punch brothers um he was already performing in the dave rawlings machine for a couple of years um and that was kind of when he had moved to nashville we'd, we'd been a band um i guess we weren't hocktail yet at that point we were still house court ties so we're trio and he was living in New York. I was in Boston. Jordan was also in New York. And um, and then Paul started working with Rawlings. And they were they were recording. I believe they were working on Nashville Obsolete at the time, the Rawlings machine record. And so they were in the studio just a ton. And so he ended up moving to Nashville because of that. And I was kind of like ready to leave Boston again. So I moved back down here. And so did Jordan, like kind of to to be in the same place as our trio so that we could work on music together. Um, And then they they wanted some other guests on the album, basically. So they invited me and Jordan to come down and we played on, I think I played on two tracks on that album and Jordan played on one. So yeah, it was very like natural. It was kind of like, we need some more musicians. And like, we know that your friends 
play. Can you get them to come? And of course, we're like, yep. <laughs> you mentioned Hocktail there. Your, that last album with Hocktail, um, they're the last release. You guys performed at the Green Mountain Festival and that live performance like ranged every emotion I think a human has in them. And it's so rare to see anywhere, let alone on a festival stage in daylight. I mean, there were parts of that, <laughs> like there were parts of that song where it felt like you were carrying like a baby bird or a nest with eggs in your bare hands, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> it just felt so like delicate. And then it would go into these incredible, incredible pieces. And I would just, you know, maybe love to talk a little bit how, about Hocktail while we have a second here too. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Yeah, and then, you know, what's kind of like the the concept behind that band? Because it just, it's such beautiful music. It's so well put together. concept behind the band that's a great question i'd say uh, like the foundation of it was the fact that we liked each other and liked a lot of the same music so kind of like being young musicians and just finding peers and friends that are kind of into exploring the same path as you and i think within this instrumental music genre like not that it's tiny, but it's it's smaller than a lot of stuff. And in terms of audience and all that, it's just a little more esoteric than like folk songs or singer songwriters and um, bands that involve singing. So we all felt, you know, very firmly in that realm. So it was cool to find friends to do that with, basically. And um, the band has always been about. Um, really showcasing each of us as individual musicians and kind of playing to our strengths um, and just creating new music together in whatever ways we can. So it's, it's been very much of a learning process for, for all of us. Um, for me, I would say like, I'm, I'm still like growing as a composer. Like that's, that's newer to me, even though I've written fiddle tunes, you know, for a long time. Um, more intricate arranging is that's like newer to me. So I coming into that group with two people who had thought already a lot about composition. Um, Jordan studied composition in college and Paul, like I think just as a bass player, like if you're that type of sort of brainiac bass player, you're like, <laughs> you're paying attention to like the whole way that the music is created from the bottom up and you know, everything in between. It's like, He's he's constantly like writing a bass part for a song, you know. He's not just going like playing the chords and bopping back and forth between one and five. He's like really thinking about like okay, and then I'll go lower at this moment. Like so, it's it's like a zoomed out version of like a whole piece of music, I guess. I don't know. I'm just trying to say that like those two guys have like really compositional minds, and I have more of like a I play the fiddle. Mind. <laughs> <laughs> But which like encompasses a lot. Like I know so many tunes that I think like that helps with like the sense of creating melodies. 
um, but not always creating harmony. So that that's like newer to me. And I've, I've like definitely developed those skills a lot by being in Hocktail and working with them on writing and arranging in that context. That's a pretty interesting way to put it too, um, that there's, there is a huge difference between melody and then harmony. And it, how do you kind of approach that? Or what are some ways that maybe you've approached that starting to get in that, that you felt opened up some doors for you? Um, gosh, I, I've never even like trying to put that into words before. Um, but let's see. I mean, I guess like just kind of in trying to increase awareness of everything that's happening around you. I think sometimes as a fiddle player, uh, or just, you know, as a human, it's easy to focus on what you yourself are doing because you're trying to do a good job at that. Um, but taking in the, like everything that's happening at a given moment in a musical setting is like, that's kind of difficult for me, especially on like what I was saying about the bass player mind versus the fiddle player mind. I think when you're on top, you can, you just hear the stuff and you sort of float above it. But when you're in the bottom or the middle, you're like creating what gives depth to this music. So you're like a little more in it and feeling what the chords mean and that kind of stuff. Um, so I don't know. I like, Actually, Bruce Molsky told me a long time ago that I should learn how to play guitar, um, that that would sort of deepen my understanding of old time music. And that was such a great piece of advice. Um, and I'm happy to have, you know, like still kind of minimal guitar skills, but enough that I just I have a, a better understanding of harmony now. And um, I, I use it as a tool to write music on. Um to kind of take me out of my melodic mindset. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling a bit here. No, it's great. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, myself being a mandolin player, you being a fiddle player, like a lot of times, I mean, when, when I would work on a tune, for instance, I, you know, a lot of times when you're writing a instrumental, you're writing mm -hmm. a melody that people are just going to kind of dance around. Like that's kind of the melody. You're not really thinking about a composition or how that part's going to fit with other parts. You're kind of like, this is kind of like the you present this to a band. You're like, here's the melody. And then you play the melody. Everybody kind of plays variations of the melody. And then you play the melody out and that's kind of the tune. And you know, these songs by Hawktail are just compositions. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're, they're, you know, they're like, I don't know, chamber pieces. I don't know if that would be the right, I'm not classically, studied so that's the right way to put it but it's just you know it's it's really amazing yeah. to listen to well thanks yeah i think i mean it's come it's coming heavily or influenced heavily by people like edgar meyer and bela fleck you know like those those guys also like don't just really write tunes um even though they they're also beautiful tunes like they they have great melodies and stuff but um yeah i it's still something i'm learning and wrapping my mind around but just yeah the idea of something being longer form and you know having i mean it's all like it comes down to like really basic things like you're saying about like carrying a baby bird or whatever like you want to like make people feel something <laughs> yeah um especially with instrumental music you don't have like the words telling them what is going on so you're just trying to like create emotions um which you can do with music which is so cool um so just kind of like discovering little things that do that and you know even changing one note in a chord and seeing how that can affect it, it and you guys tour a lot and it, it, it's one thing to do that 
and present it in an album format where people are at home listening to it or maybe in a vehicle on a drive listening to it. But to capture people's attention at a festival or, you know, in a live setting. And, and again, it was really amazing the, the, the quiet of the audience while you were performing. I mean, you, you had that group of people engaged and that's, you know, there's people standing in the heat, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then you have this brand new album out with your sister. So you produced this entire album. Was that your first time producing uh, um, a recording? It's my third time. Is it really? Actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of been like, few and far between but the first thing i produced was for my dear friend lauren ryu who's a great music educator as well as fiddle player in maine that was like 10 years ago um and then i got to produce sammy brayman's fiddle album that just came out a couple of months ago Yeah, that was co-produced with her, rather. Um, so, yeah, and basically, I mean, sometimes it's hard to know what that even means. You know, I think different producers have a different um, approach to what they do with it. But um, basically, a lot of the, the most of the tunes on the record are written by my sister. We arrange them together. Um, and basically... I, I think I had some stronger ideas about how I wanted things to go, but but we both like definitely had a, a say in how the arrangements turned out. And um, and then I did all the editing. So I did like the post-production work after we'd done all the tracking in the studio. So that's kind of, I guess, what I meant by being the producer here was just that like I did the back end work of like choosing the the versions and sometimes like splicing things together that wasn't exactly how we played it in the studio and those kinds of decisions were made by me with i, I would like check with her because i didn't want her to be unhappy with the final <laughs> right, <course>. right. <laughs> but uh yeah i don't know it's it's really great working with a family member because you kind of already have that ease of communication where it's like you're not really like beating around the bush about anything so it's just been really great working with her. Yeah. How long did the sessions take? We had three days and we did it in Sound Emporium, the B room. I knew I want I knew that I wanted to work with Dave Singo as the engineer because I've worked with him a lot and he's just yeah, the best and the sweetest and just so awesome and helpful. Um, so he he said he used to work at that studio for years. Um, so that was his choice. And I said, sure, wherever you want to do it. Um, and yeah, it was, it was right before Christmas last year. Uh, the sound quality is incredible. And the other thing that just absolutely floors me about this, um, like great musicians can get together and record a bunch of songs and it can come off sterile and not really, you know, an easy listen. But the fact that you guys accomplished this incredible groove together, it's almost, it almost reminds me of like, um, when you hear like sibling harmony vocals and you're like yeah nobody can mm -hmm. harmonize like that it just happens they're siblings you can't that's almost unfair i kind of get that vibe <laughs> i kind of get that vibe from this recording <laughs> cool yeah yeah i know what you mean for sure um there's a, definitely a genetic um 
benefit there. <laughs> so like, how long was this album in the works? Is this something you guys have always wanted to do? Or was it just a spur of the moment thing? We're like, wow, we have these, we have these days, we should do this. It was pretty spur of the moment. Although in hindsight, I kind of wonder why we hadn't done it sooner. But I think we just, you know, like life was taking us in the directions that we were on. And we both been busy doing other musical projects. So, um, yeah, it was the universe helped conspire to make this happen. And then when it did it, it all happened really quickly, um, basically because we had some gigs that we wanted to bring it to. Um, so, yeah, it worked out great. Let's talk a little bit about some of the songs that you composed on this, because you said, you know, your sister composed some. And then there's a uh, there's a, I think it's just one traditional one on there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the first tune that, that you composed on here, Kevin and Michal slash Wayne's Jig. Let's talk a little bit about the, that tune. medley of uh, jigs written in the style of Irish fiddle music. And basically this was inspired by a recording that I came into during the pandemic. It was a live recording from Kevin Burke and Michal O'Donnell, um, who are a, a fiddle player and a guitar player from Ireland. And they, they are beautiful musicians. And I just loved the, the style really of how those two parts fit together. So originally I was like Paul and I actually during the pandemic, it was just a sort of for fun project. We're learning a bunch of tunes from this live recording. He was playing fiddle and I was playing guitar and I was pretty blown away, blown away by the guitar playing and just kind of how his his choral ideas fit rhythmically. Um, and it was like more accessible to me as more of like an old time guitar strummer than like a Celtic down, up, down, down, up, down strummer. Like I've never, I've never been able to do that on the guitar. So, and he does this like three beat subdivision rather than the full six, eight feel. Um, so it's just like more accessible for me basically. And it, and it um, kind of inspires these cool bass lines in the chords. So that's, that was where the ideas came from is just trying to write something in that style because I loved it so much. Um, and the second tune is named after the sound engineer that, that sent us that recording. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> is that recording like out there for people to find? Um, I don't think so, but there are a bunch of videos of the two of them on YouTube. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, from this Irish TV show in the 70s. How about track eight here, The Rose Gardener? <laughs> So 
that one, it's named after our mom because um, she has a really lovely garden, mostly comprised of roses. And um, it's a waltz. It's, um, yeah, I don't know what to say about it really other than, uh, and I mean, Nellie helped me make it what it is. Um, <laughs> like, I think like she, because she's um, toured with Alistair Fraser for 23 years or so whoa wow yeah and he's the guy who ran the valley of the moon fiddle camp where we kind of got um inducted into the whole like community of folk music that's where i met daryl and bruce um so he's a huge mentor to both of us and she and he have been developing this fiddle and cello duo for such a long time they've made a bunch of albums and um yeah, just have such a sound together so that I think like when she writes new music, it's really informed by that, like just knowing exactly how that format of a fiddle and cello work together. Um, and I don't have that same sensibility or that same knowledge of like exactly how to write for this setting. Um, so like when I do, when I compose tunes, usually I have like a guitar in mind probably because I can play the guitar. So it's sort of like what I use as my tool. Um, but then sort of translating that into a cello part is like a lot harder. Um, so, <laughs> but the, the, the bonus is that she can literally do anything. So I could like write out an elaborate part for her to play note for note and she could just do it immediately. Um, so that happened a lot where I was like, try this <laughs> and then I'd, you know, record it and think about it and then be like, actually try this. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that is kind of like just a display of like where I'm at compositionally in the moment, I suppose it's, yeah, it's a waltz and it's sort of um, the, the idea that started it um, is the, the opening phrase and the A part that kind of, um, like when I started writing it, I didn't know if it was going to stay in three, four or be like a crooked waltz, but then I decided I'd just take, I'd keep it in three, four and displace the melody. When you're talking about writing these things out, how early was it that you started? I know you're studying the Suzuki method pretty early on. Um, uh -huh. I mean, did you always stick with kind of the, the written music a lot? I mean, a lot of this is, you know, more of a oral tradition, I know in, in some sense, but how, how much of it early on was, you know, like the dots on the paper? you know to, to say and then as opposed to like later on when you were going to school yeah good question um more so like the reading was mostly confined into the classical music that i was studying early on and then it was kind of drilled into us at the fiddle camps that you know this this is an oral tradition it's based around dancing and we learn stuff by ear and yes it might be written down as kind of a, a tool to like recall or learn something quickly or whatever but but it's not about that you can't get it you can't get the the sense of what this is really supposed to sound like from the page so like don't even bother <laughs> um so yeah i guess I, I see those as pretty separate although um it's a good it's a good tool for writing i guess sometimes um when yeah, I don't know if you want to have more figured out parts, um, especially if you're not just like with the person that you're working with. Like she lives in Spain at the moment. So we weren't together for all of the, the prep work on this. Some of it was like, um, some of it was like sending recordings back and forth. Um, 
but yeah, for that, for that waltz, um, I did have it notated out, which came, I mean, it, it was like, I made the melody on the fiddle. I made the chords on the guitar. And then I started writing it down in order to, to create the cello part, basically. Do you have a favorite tune on here that your sister composed? Ooh, fun question. Um, gosh, I love a lot of them. I, I might have to say The Volunteer. It's one of the Polskas on there. Space too, free space, real for Dennis. The one that opens. What a perfect opening track for an album. Oh, thanks. I mean, the minute I, you know, the minute I started listening to it, I'm like, oh, I'm in. This is like, this is something I would have heard if I would have heard this on the radio, you know, or some. I would have stopped and like gotten my phone out immediately and being like, you know, like Siri, what is this song? <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Now, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit. Obviously, this is a mandolin podcast, too. And one of the things I find amazing about um, your playing, and I would love to ask you about a little bit, is you're so proficient at multiple styles of music. And it's, you know, I think, it, I mean, it's definitely tough for me to sit down and sometimes formulate a practice because I want to work on gypsy jazz and I want to work on fiddle tunes and I want to work on, you know, originals. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, like, how, you know, maybe when you were really kind of working on many things at once, what was kind of what was your day like or how were you able to practice and ma maintain such a high level of proficiency at all these different styles? Hmm, good question. I think I was just really lucky in terms of the exposure um, and kind of having that at a young age. Because um, I do think, I mean, I have plenty of adult students and I love working with them and I'm continually inspired and, you know, surprised by how much progress people can make at any stage in life. Um, but I feel lucky that I was, you know, I had this early exposure to a lot of styles through the fiddle camp world, through Valley de Moon and the Mark O'Connor fiddle camps where it was really about, about just bringing all these fiddle players together and just kind of getting this like wide swath of, diverse styles that you could check out and be like oh I love that I want to do more of that like obviously there's not enough time in the day to be a master at everything but I I was around enough stuff and kind of absorb absorbing and also seeing people do it which is so helpful and now we have YouTube but back then it was like to be in a room with Bruce Molsky and watch his bow arm is like the best way to try to figure out what is going on and how to do that um so yeah I was exposed to it at a young age where I could like hear and kind of just try to figure out what was going on in terms of this, what makes the style the style. Um, so yeah, I think back then 
I was learning things pretty specifically, you know, in terms of like, these are the left hand ornaments that you would use on an Irish tune. Or, um, you know, this is the way that you bow this old time tune. Um, so a lot of like really specific stuff. And then also just a, a ton of listening to stuff um, that was, um, you know, not in a box or whatever, but like specifically what it was like Martin Hayes's fiddle playing like that is one type of Irish fiddle playing and Krzmalski is one type of old time fiddle playing and then kind of like going beyond that even into the older generations of fiddlers and stuff. Um, uh, I'm rambling again, but yeah. No, this is um, great. I, I love it. <laughs> Ramble on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it's harder these days to kind of pick a genre because things blur as like as it's so easy to access all of it totally and even like when i think of myself as a teacher it's like i came up with these pretty specific styles from specific people but since i like have amalgamated some of that into my own style like the way that i teach is in a way like a watered down version of any of those specific styles you know um so it's more like this is, you know, I've taken this from this and this from that, and that is now my playing. But that that's not necessarily a good way to teach a tradition. But it is a good way to develop your own style. I mean, I think that's it's great that you have like you have a style, which is amazing. Yeah. Like, because so many people try so hard to play, like Tony Rice, for instance, and mm -hmm. or or whoever it is, and that you know, trying to sound exactly like anybody isn't. I mean, I guess if that's all you want to do and you want to sound exactly like someone, that's one way to approach it. But I think it's much more rewarding to say like, uh, Brittany Haas has her own style, you know? And it's because of all these influences, that's what makes you you. Totally, yeah. And I think that was like modeled to me by Daryl who has such a distinct, distinctive style. You know, when you hear him, you know it's him. What's some, what's, uh, is there any pieces of advice that you've gotten? Because you played with just some, again, just some incredible players and you're surrounded with, you know, all these great musicians. And, you know, I always love to wonder if there was like ever a piece of advice or when you're playing something that kind of pops in the back of your head, maybe at a high stress situation or you're getting ready to go on stage. And you're like, oh, my gosh, this is a this is a crazy gig. And, you know, something goes through your mind that you're like, OK, you know, this is this is getting me through. Now you play five string violin. So how how do you get use or for people in and this is more of a selfish question because I also um have an electric mandolin and I've got a four string and a five string. And that five <laughs> string is a bit of a nightmare <laughs> when you are not, you know, when you're not used to having it there. And so mm -hmm. what's some advice to help them with that low string? Um I guess just do anything to get yourself using it um so for me that was like move everything down a fifth um but it could be like move everything down an octave or just confine yourself to only playing down there for a while <laughs> <You know? laughs> just use it don't be afraid of it and get down there and figure out what sounds good i mean that's i feel like that's overarching advice in general it's just like pay attention listen to what you're doing and decide what you think sounds good because everybody's different and what works for somebody might not work for somebody else so like I, I do think imitation is like a wonderful wonderful way to learn but um i think just kind of having the the patience and the bravery to listen to yourself, like listen to recordings of yourself and 
just like decide what what you like about it and uh and what you need to work on and then do it <laughs> <laughs> how long have you been playing a five string for um gosh i got one when i was 14 and i haven't gone back so 22 years <laughs> oh wow yeah, I love it. I've I've definitely bonded heavily with my instrument. What is your main instrument? It's made by a guy named John Silkowski, who we recently lost. Oh uh, shoot, he, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's sad, but he made a, a lot of fiddles and they're all amazing and they're in great hands. Michael Cleveland plays one, Casey Driesen has some, a bunch of other young fiddlers have them. Um so yeah, he, he had a special thing going for how he built five strings um, in terms of, I mean, there's a lot of great makers out there. I don't mean to diminish anybody else, but I, I particularly like how he did the setup on them where it's not too wide of a neck. So it's, it's easier to get around on and the strings are a little bit closer together and the bridge is fairly flat. Um, so just little setup things like that, that, that kind of add up to it, it being very playable. Do you also play mandolin? You know, I have one and <laughs> <laughs> I do play it sometimes. I'm not proud of my playing. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. I'll say that. It's it's super fun. I actually have never quite learned how to chop. So like, <laughs> <laughs> my mandolin playing is like very kind of primitive old timey, I would say. Like it's a lot of like picky, strummy stuff. Um, but it's a lot of fun. Is there anything that you think mandolin players maybe overlook that you do in fiddle or that you f have found in fiddle or old time fiddle that would maybe behoove more mandolin players to look into or to work on? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the interesting thing about the mandolin that's different um, than the fiddle in terms of the kind of rhythmic role um the like just the the fact that you can be really toneful in your rhythm playing but that's like a lot to be thinking about because you're also trying to think about exactly where to place your notes such that they're in time with everything else happening around you right, you know right, yeah like that's that's a huge um job already to to be interactive and listening and and you know placing placing your offbeats in the right place or whatever type of feel you're going for um so i think that's a lot to think about already but then also just like the sound um and i think that's that's a cool thing about the instrument is that everybody kind of has a different um tone to their chop you know um and i guess i feel like this is true for fiddlers especially i'm not sure this is if this is at all going on in the man mind of a mandolin player but um where you're like when when you're playing rhythm you don't necessarily think about the sounds you just think about the rhythmic precision so wow yeah wow i, I think that's like an important thing for everybody to consider I think we're all try either thinking sound like Sam Bush or sound like Adam Steffi. That's what's going on in the, when we're chopping. <laughs> try to try to sound like Sam Bush. Try to sound like Sam Bush. <laughs> I love like fiddle tunes and I really love like some of the old time fiddle tunes. And some of the things I think you maybe forget is sometimes the fiddles might be tuned a little bit differently 
than the uh, mandolin. But, you know, sometimes listening to some of those old fiddle recordings, it's tougher to transcribe to mandolin than um, than you think sometimes. You know, you're like, whoa, I mean, it seems like I'm hearing this melody, but now it seems like now that I'm playing it, I'm not hearing it right at all. <laughs> Oh, do you mean like with microtonal stuff? Yeah, I mean, that could be it. Or just sometimes, you know, like for some reason, even though, you know, they're kind of like the same figuring and you know, similar instruments, it just seems like sometimes um, trying to learn a fiddle tune, just hearing the fiddle, it just seems to be a little bit more difficult than I think you would assume. Um, okay. I don't really yeah. know how to describe it. It's just like, you know, hear something and be like... Um, you know, like, uh, oh, was it Jerry Harrison? Is that who I'm thinking of who had? Oh, Red Red Prairie Dawn? Red Prairie Dawn. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, okay. but again, I had like his album and um, it was just playing one day. I'm like, oh, I should work on this. I'm, you know, like 30 minutes later, I'm like, Jesus, man, what am I doing? <laughs> this doesn't seem like, <laughs> this doesn't sound anything like this song I'm working yeah. on here. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I think, I mean, in a way, maybe it's kind of like Bill Monroe where like there's this sort of looseness of like, you like the brain of the person listening sort of processes it in a certain way but that doesn't mean that that's what they actually played like it's like not necessarily even like a specific note it's, it's just like <laughs> right. rhythm and like your hand is moving and like it creates this effect i i love when people are like oh bill monroe is just sloppy i'm like well you just pick any Bill Monroe song and you play it back to me. So I can't tell if it's Bill Monroe or you. And then you tell me how sloppy Bill Monroe was. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's way more difficult than it sounds. So. Yeah. And he's doing it on purpose. Like you've got to, I, I believe that anyways, like it's, it's completely crafted to sound the way it sounds, which is so awesome. Yeah, I love it. I'm I'm going to be uh, doing some podcasting at that Monroe camp, and I'm really excited. One of the things that I'm going to do that I had pitched to them is I want to sit down because there's so many great Monroe style players there, and yet they uh -huh. all style Bill. They all study Bill Monroe, but none of them sound the same, which I find completely yeah. intriguing. They're all incredible on their own right, but they have the same foundation. So I'm looking forward to hear them play the same tune and see the like the nuances and the differences that they have yeah that's awesome so nerdy <laughs> just saying it out <laughs> loud it. just saying out loud i'm like <laughs> yeah <laughs> so. Totally. <laughs> so i've got two more questions for you here real quick and uh and, mm -hmm. and the first one is especially because you're a teacher um so if you just had 10 minutes a day to work on something or that you would recommend you know just oh. a blanket thing to work on what would you recommend Whoa. Um, wow. Uh, well, I guess rhythm. If, if I try to like boil it down, I'd say rhythm is the most important thing. Um, because if you have good rhythm, then it just feels good and sounds good, no matter any of the other factors. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, so I guess, I mean... I know it's like kind of nerdy and maybe not the funnest thing or it seems not fun, but I think metronome practice is, that's a good, a really, 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 really good thing. And it also kind of like helps distinguish between like practice versus playing, you know, where like hopefully you have some setting in which you go, you know, even if it's go into the park and play by yourself and people might be walking by or whatever, or if it's like going and playing with friends or some kind of like jam setting where it's social, 
Um, like just that that is a totally different thing than when you're home alone and you're working on something so that you can be a better musician when you go out and do that kind of stuff. Um, so I think metronome is like, you know, you're not going to have that in the real world, but if you have it at home, then you'll do better in the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then the final question is, do you have a favorite beer? Um, oh, not at the moment. I'm mostly like a Pilsner lager kind of person. Um, especially these days. I used to drink more IPAs, but I'm kind of over it for the moment. Yeah, I am too, um, believe it or not. And I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love a good IPA. Don't get me wrong. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. It's, it's like a, yeah, two of them, it's like you ate dinner <laughs> at some of these totally. anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I've gone through like because of the musician lifestyle being what it is, um, definitely had phases of drinking more than I should have. So trying to like take a break sometimes at home. And there's actually so many good non-alcoholic beers these days, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah, there are a ton of them out there. And I just had a really good um, shorts brewing out of Michigan has a really good like light lager that they mm. that they did. I just had someone I was up there. I'm like, man, I've got to find this down here. <laughs> nice. I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that. Yeah, it's good stuff. So and actually bonus question, since I actually have a fiddle player on there every now and again, I like to ask when you pick up your instrument, do you have a favorite fiddle tune that you like to play? Ooh. Um, one, one that I often default to is the tune called Willow Creek, um, that I learned from the playing of James Bryan. It's so good. It's in D. Um, yeah, you can find it on his records. Awesome. I'm going to look it up. Well, man, congratulations on the brand new album. Congratulations on joining the Punch Brothers. If there is a place you recommend people to go and purchase this new album from, where would you, where's the best place for people to go get it? They can get it on Bandcamp if they go to my Bandcamp page. So it's brittanyhaas.bandcamp.com. Awesome. I will have the link below as, lo- as well as links to your website and to uh, your socials and all that great stuff. Brittany, thank you so awesome. much for doing this. It's been so awesome talking with you. You too, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. All right, there we go. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much to Brittany for doing the uh, podcast. Really appreciate it. She's super busy, as you can imagine. So go on out and pick up that brand new album. They're on Bandcamp. All the links are down below. You have a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.